Last week, we kicked off a new series in the book of Philippians. We're taking eight weeks and going through this book together. And um, one of the things we talked about was the uh, element and theme of joy. And we're going to see that throughout this book uh, in, in the book of Philippians. And, and this week, uh, we're in verses uh, 12 through 30 of chapter 1. And um, I was, as I was thinking about this uh, and the theme of this particular passage uh, as we're looking at it this morning, I got to thinking about, uh, the uh, at least the last time I checked, the greatest selling book of all time outside of the Bible, and I should have fact-checked myself on this. At one time, this was true. <laughs> I know it's the greatest selling Christian book. Um, but the greatest selling, I believe, book of all time outside the Bible um, was uh, The Purpose Driven Life. Do you remember that? Uh, it became wildly popular uh, back about 10 or 15 years ago. And churches started, and that was one of the reasons, churches bought it in huge, uh, just gulp quantities, right? Mass quantities and started um, uh, using it as Bible study material and doing studies through it. And, and people were it was just flying off the bookshelf. And they actually re-released released it, um, and when they, when they taglined the book, uh, when it originally came out back in the early 2000s, it was uh, The Purpose Driven Life, Why on Earth Am I Here? Or What on Earth Am I Here For? Or something like that. And they just retitled the book and re-released it here in the last year, and they titled it, Why on Earth Am I Here? And, uh, and I think they might have taglined it the other way or something like that, and just, you know, millions of more people go and buy it up. And you look at a book like that, and aside from the content and the, uh, and the author and all that, what, what makes a book like that so popular? And I believe one of the reasons is it speaks to something that's just in the human DNA to want to know. It speaks to the idea of purpose. Um, I can't think of anything much more depressing than going through life with no purpose. Not having, and even wondering if there's any reason for you being here. Not having any reason to live your life. I mean, that's, uh, that drives people many times to despair. And so it's kind of within our very nature to want to have purpose and to seek purpose and to look for purpose in life and to think that there is a reason for our life. And the Bible actually has much to say about that. Christians know, and we believe and teach here, that true purpose is found in Jesus. Right, that you um, you find your true purpose in life when you find a relationship with Him, because we believe that we were created to know and to worship God. Um, the the end for which, in other words, God created man was to glorify Himself, to know Him, and to make much of Him. You you can't really know your God given purpose without knowing God. And so, and the only way you can know God is through Jesus, through knowing Jesus by faith in Jesus. And once you know that, you discover and you do have purpose in life. Now. For everybody, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, life is about something for you. Uh, We wouldn't really want to even get out of bed in the morning if we didn't think there was some purpose for our life. And for some, if it's not Christ, it's something else. Maybe it's your family. Right? That's a good thing. And some people live their life for their family or they live their life for their work and they just really enjoy their work and and achieving things at work. For some people, it's to earn more and make more and have more influence and have more money uh, or to have more power. Uh, for some people, it's for the enjoyment of life and, and pleasure and thrill-seeking. Um, ultimately, though, it's about making yourself happy apart from God if you're not making yourself happy in God. It's kind of our choices. So we're either pursuing happiness and pursuing joy in a relationship with God or we're trying to find that outside of a relationship with God. Here's one thing that is true. There's not anyone that is not pursuing happiness or pursuing joy. Everybody's pursuing it. It's just, what are you pursuing it in? And so even someone that's completely in despair, they got there from pursuing happiness and pursuing joy the wrong way and in the wrong things, which we all do apart from God. And so 
That's the story of the Bible, right? We come back to that over and over again. We've all sinned and we've went astray from God and, and we've taken and we've replaced God in our life with things and His creation. And uh, we, instead of worshiping and revering Him, we've rejected and rebelled against Him. And we've ultimately begun to look for our purpose and look for meaning in life and all those things apart from Him. And that's what sin ultimately is. Well, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 um, is some of the more powerful verses and some of the more, a couple of the more uh, uh, famous passages in the scripture, one in particular that we're going to look at this morning. And when you read this, as we're going to over the next several minutes, um, what, you, what you see here is someone who we said last week in our introduction who is just full of joy. And it just keeps coming out. And, but he's in a very difficult time. You know, he speaks of joy, we said last week, some 14 times he uses the word for joy or rejoice in this book uh, in four short chapters. Very short epistle, but 14 times, about three and a half times a chapter, he's talking about joy. But he's locked up. He's in prison. He's facing adversity. But he has joy because his joy, we see, is not determined by his circumstances. And that's really going to stand out to us this morning when we read. And so why is Paul able to have this kind of non-circumstantial joy? Because in the midst of suffering, in a time when most people would seek into despondency and despair or give up, and he has this joy, it's evident that it's because of his relationship with Christ. And this morning we're going to hear that apart from, Paul, um, that apart from the fact that Paul's joy in Christ, or Paul's joy was rooted in Christ, um, one of the key themes we see here is that his joy was rooted in purpose. Um, he had a purpose for living, and, and a purpose that wasn't chained to the fact that he was chained up in prison. In fact, he could still have joy and feel like he had purpose and feel like he had meaning in life, even though he was in jail, even though he was imprisoned and weren't, wasn't able to have some of the freedoms he wanted to have. He still had purpose. And so part of the key to having joy in life like Paul had and experiencing the full joy of the Christian life is living your life not with purpose that are shaped by your circumstances, but with purpose that is shaped by the gospel. We'll see the theme of the gospel and Jesus mentioned throughout this text. Um, I believe it's 14 times in 19 verses that Paul speaks of Jesus or the gospel. That's a lot. <laughs> Almost every verse he mentions Jesus or the gospel because that is connected to his purpose and his reason for living and his reason for being. So that's what I want to do. We're going to kind of read chunk by chunk. I'm going to read down uh, verses 12 through 18. We'll talk about it. Then we'll go and we'll look at verses um, 19 through 26 and talk about it. And then we'll finish up with verses um, 27 through 30. So look with me, starting in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former... Proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. 
The first thing we see here as we talk about Paul's sense of purpose and how his purpose was shaped by the gospel was that the first key to here to Paul's purpose was he had a mission that had been shaped by the gospel. He, he had a mission in life that was tied to his purpose. He, and so we see here in verses 12 through 19, Paul's gospel-shaped mission, and it stands out there in verse 12, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That was Paul's mission. To advance the gospel. And the idea here in these verses is not that in spite of everything that's happened to me, the gospel still goes forward. That's not what Paul's saying. Did you catch that? He's saying, through what has happened to me, the gospel has went forward. And I'm good with that. In other words, my suffering, God, the gospel hasn't went forward even though I've suffered. God has used my suffering to advance the gospel. I'm in prison and God's using the fact that I'm in prison to make the gospel go forward. That word advance means to progress. It's the same word he uses here in a few, uh, few verses later we're going to read where he talks about their progress and joy in the faith. He says it has, is, has reached the whole imperial guard. That's likely referring to the soldiers um, that guarded the emperor in Rome. Uh, people are hearing that Paul is in prison. And so they're talking about the gospel. And Paul is getting opportunity to talk to those who are guarding him about the gospel. And so it's spreading throughout the, Ro- uh, the whole Roman cohort. The gospel is going forward. Paul's in prison, but the gospel continues to go forward. Because here's the thing. You can chain Paul, but Paul's saying you can't chain the gospel. You can imprison me, but you can't imprison the gospel. You can't keep the gospel from going forward. And Paul even goes as far as to say the fact that he's in jail and the gospel's still going forward and the way he's suffering so well that others now have boldness to be even more bold in sharing the gospel because... Of the way he suffered. And so God is using his suffering in all kinds of ways to make the gospel go forward. And one of it is, is that now though Paul is in prison, it's like he's multiplied and there's a lot of Pauls. It's like they chained one guy up and all that did was fire up a bunch of people to then go out and to talk more boldly about Jesus. Because they say, well, if Paul can suffer well, I can suffer well. If Paul's willing to do that, I should be willing to do that. If if they they can chain Paul, but they can chain all of us, right? And so we see Paul here. He's willing to endure physical pain and go to great personal expense because his mission is to advance the gospel. He had a purpose in life, and in his purpose in life, we're going to get to even more clearly here in just a moment, but it was tied to a mission. He had a mission, something that he wanted to accomplish, and that was to advance the gospel. But he wasn't just willing to suffer physical pain. He was okay with emotional pain. Look at verses 15 through 18. Right, Some are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and they're doing, people are out preaching the gospel, but they're doing it with the motive of trying to hurt Paul. Now, people will debate, like, who are these people? Um, what, what Are they like some kind of heretical group? And Paul deals with the heretical group over in chapter 3. I don't think this group was a, that group. Um, this is a group of people that apparently know the real gospel and they preach the real gospel because Paul rejoices that people are being saved. He's fine with the gospel going forward. So whatever they're sharing, it's enough for people to come to know Jesus. But it's tainted with this evil motive. And their motive was something to do with kind of rubbing it in Paul's face. In some way, they had a rivalry with Paul and he says they're doing it out of selfish ambition. They're probably trying to usurp his authority. Uh, they may be even trying to uh, to lead uh, to, to, to lead uh, the Gentiles into some some bad things after they come to faith in Christ. Whatever their motive, we we're not real sure. But all we know is that they were somehow trying to leverage the fact that Paul was in prison. They were not in prison. They were able to go around and 
plant churches, preach the gospel, whatever. Paul wasn't, and they were trying to leverage that and use it in a way to hurt Paul and to damage him and to make him grieve because for whatever reason, they didn't like Paul or they didn't like his authority or they didn't like his place in the church. But Paul's point is no matter why they're doing it, the gospel's still going forward. And in that, I rejoice. Why someone advances the gospel certainly matters in their relationship with the Lord, but it doesn't affect your relationship with the Lord. Right? Paul was willing to be mocked. He was fine with someone else getting the glory. And yeah, he grieved their selfishness. He's not okay with what they're doing, but he's okay with the gospel going forward. Because Paul's whole mantra in life was the advancement of the gospel. Paul's whole life purpose is summed up in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. He says, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I know that. The Holy Spirit wants me to go. But I don't know what's going to happen. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me. He's saying, God has told me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. In other words, God has convinced me that I'm going to have to suffer. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. In other words, I'm okay with that. If only I may finish my course. And the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel. Of the grace of God. He says I'm okay with suffering. As long as I finish my course. As long as the gospel continues to advance. See for the believer. There is joy in the advancement of the gospel. But it can be costly. And many times the gospel advances through means. That we would not choose. Ideally. It can be through pain. Sometimes the gospel advances through painful times in our lives. God can and does use the suffering of believers. He does use persecution. He can use sickness. He can use unfortunate circumstances in the life of a believer to reach many people with the gospel. Many of you would know stories and could testify to stories like that. God can use those things. He does use those things. That's why there's always meaning in our suffering. But not only that, he can use hypocrites like some of these folks here that Paul talks about. Sometimes the gospel advances in spite of people. (laughs) and it was advancing in spite of the motives of those people because, as the old saying goes, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, right? Um, He can. And this is a primary example of a bunch of crooked sticks right out there trying to to do damage, but they're sharing the real gospel, and people are coming to know Jesus, and Paul's like, okay, you know, because God is bigger than people. And so at times the gospel will advance and it will cost us something. And the gospel can at times cause tension in our relationships. It can make you less popular. It could cost you a job. Gospel advance is not easy, but for the person whose life is centered on the gospel, it's always joyous and you always think it's worth it, even though in the moment it's painful or there's suffering involved or it's uncomfortable. You know, there's, I thought about this um, I ran this by my wife to make sure this is an okay illustration to point to. But, you know, any lady in the room who has ever had a child could testify to the fact, I can't testify to this other than I've been there as a witness, you know, um, that child delivery is not pleasant. Um, and, and most people would affirm that pregnancy is not either. Um, both of those things are things that are uncomfortable, to say the least, right? But I've never met a mom who's just kind of like, and, you know, it wasn't worth it at the end. Right? There's joy, right? And there's celebration. And it's worth it because there's this life in this person that you love. Well, Paul is saying, listen, there is pain and there is suffering that nobody would just naturally choose. But it's worth it because what happens? The gospel goes forth. People come to know Jesus. Lives are transformed for eternity. And that makes it worth it. That's what Paul's pointing to here. See, he has this mission 
See, a person of gospel-shaped purpose, whose life is, purpose has been shaped by the gospel, will have a mission that has been shaped by the gospel. They'll, what they do in life will be shaped by the gospel. Paul's mission was to make disciples. You know, God didn't put you on earth so you can retire at 50 or make X amount of dollars or whatever your personal goals are. That's not why God placed you on earth. Your purpose in life needs to be in sync with God's mission for you. And that mission, if you're a believer, is to advance the gospel at home and at work. You're, you're, not, you're, you're not someone who works that happens to be a Christian. You're a Christian that happens to have a job. You're a Christian that has a family. You're a Christian that's a neighbor. And that begins to permeate everything else. And that mission begins to infiltrate everything in your life. And when your purpose in life is centered around Christ and his gospel. Now... That's a mission that can survive losing a job. That's a mission in life that can survive a health scare, uh, personal pain, financial ruin, because in all circumstances, the gospel can always go forward. There's not a circumstance in life that can end the advancement of the gospel. Just like Paul, we can be chained, but the gospel isn't. But see, Paul didn't just have a mission shaped by the gospel. Paul, secondly, we see here that Paul, Paul's gospel-shaped desire. His desires in life were shaped by the gospel, and that's why his mission was what it was. We're going to see that Paul's desire here that we're about to read about in verses 19 to 26 are what fueled his mission. Look at starting in verse, um, the end of verse 18 um, through verse 26. He says, Yes, and I rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's far better, he says. Let's stop there for a second. He said, so here, Paul, we're, we're, we're getting a picture, we're getting a picture, we're getting a look at his chief desire in life. He goes on rejoicing and talking about his deliverance. He says, I'm going to be delivered. This word can not, we look at it, we say, okay, he's talking about getting out of prison, right? But the, the Greek word can actually also speak to ultimate deliverance and salvation. Paul is conveying, conveying a confidence that he believes he's going to get out of jail, and he does. This is not the imprisonment that will ultimately end his life. He'll actually have a third, uh, another missionary journey uh, in which he'll write books like Second Timothy. But he's speaking beyond that. When you read, when you, when, as, the, as the verse goes on, do you notice whether I live, whether I die, Christ is going to be honored in my body. He's saying, I know I'm going to be delivered, even if delivered doesn't look like getting out of prison the way I would like to get out of prison. In other words, even if they execute me, ultimately I know God is going to deliver me. I know Christ is going, he has won, and I am going to be a victor. And notice he relied on two things, the prayers of other people and the Holy Spirit. He says, I count on this because, and I know this, because of your prayers and because of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus working in my life. See, even the Apostle Paul needed other people. He needed the prayers of believers. He needed to be consciously dependent upon the Spirit of God. His expectation was, he says, not to be ashamed, which is a word that many times speaks to standing before God unashamed at the day of judgment, not falling away, but being able to stand because you remain in your relationship with Christ. He, he's speaking of that confidence. But 
He's also just talking about that he's going to be able to continue to live for Christ and to exalt Christ whether he lives or whether he dies. He expects for the Spirit to strengthen him. He expects for the prayers of the saints to strengthen him and for him to finish well no matter what that finish looks like. He's, and he's joyful, right? There's a spirit of joy because no matter what happens to him, he says, Christ will be honored. Whether I live or whether I die, Christ will be honored. Your translation in your Bible may say Christ will be glorified. The Greek word can go either way. To honor, to glorify. And that is Paul's chief desire. That whether he lives or whether he dies, Christ be glorified. And the reason his mission in life was to advance the gospel was because his desire in life was to glorify Jesus. And nothing quite glorifies Jesus like the advancement of the gospel and people coming to saving faith in Christ. Paul's life was driven by a desire to glorify Jesus. Paul's desire and the purpose for which he was created were in sync. You see? you see, he was created to glorify God, to glorify Jesus Christ. He was created to live not for himself, but for, for something bigger than himself, someone bigger than himself. And that's his desire, right? He says, my desire is to glorify Jesus. And so that's why he's got joy through his purpose, because the purpose for which he lives, the desire for which he lives, and the purpose for which he was created are in sync. And that's one of the keys to having joy in life. It makes... It, It makes perfect sense that many people go through life without joy and without peace and without contentment when their purpose for which they live their life and the purpose for which they were created are not the same. makes perfect sense. And And it makes perfect sense that when the purpose for which they were created and the very desire for which they want to live come together, that they have joy, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. See, for a Christian, how you live and how you die should both be different because of the gospel. You see, Paul, whether I live, whether I die, it's going to be, it's, it's shaped by the gospel. You now strive to live for the glory of Jesus, and you even want your death to glorify Jesus. But we know we need the Holy Spirit's help, and we know we need people to pray for us. That's what Paul's saying here. But love for Jesus changes all of our other loves. And love for Jesus changes all of our other fears, even like the fear of death. Because to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says. To live is Christ, he says. In other words, for Paul, living meant knowing Christ, serving Christ, worshiping Christ, sharing Christ, living for Christ, becoming more like Christ. Everything about life was about Christ for him. His life was consumed by Jesus. Do you get that? I mean, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, can there be a more just plain spoken statement? That's Paul's life verse. He says, Paul, what's life like for you? It's Christ. What's death like for you? It's gain. That's Paul. Because his greatest desire was to glorify Jesus. He was consumed by Jesus. And we can be consumed by a lot of things. I, I was reminded of a story this weekend. Um, um, an old story that, uh, if, uh, that only a, an old Alabama football fan like me probably is, is familiar with. But maybe a few others uh, in the room. Uh, back in 1950, it's a college football story. So even if you're just a college football fan, you'll like it maybe. Um, in 1954, there was a cotton bowl. And Alabama played a team called Rice. I tell you they had a team because you wouldn't know it these days. But back then, Rice was pretty good, right? And so Rice and Alabama played in the Cotton Bowl. Rice won the game. Um, But in this particular game, Rice was winning. And they were down around the Alabama goal line. And they ran an an, an end around, a reverse, right? And they hand it off to the wide receiver. And he goes around the end and he breaks free. And he is just streaking down the sideline, right, for another touchdown. And all of a sudden, there's a guy by the name of Tommy Lewis who's on the sideline, not in the game, and he just comes running onto the field, and he just takes the guy's legs right out from under him, nearly breaks his legs, right, and tackles him right there on the field. 
It's one of, the, one of the wildest plays in college football. He's like, why is this guy who's not in the game running on the field to make this tackle? And so the referees actually, they actually rewarded Rice with a touchdown uh, because the guy did this to break up the touchdown. It was so unusual and so strange that Ed Sullivan on one of his shows had the guy that was tackled and had Tommy Lewis from Alabama on one of his shows to talk to them about this strange and unusual play, which at the time was one of the strangest uh, known uh, at that time of college football. It's called the 12th man tackle. And Ed Sullivan asked Tommy Lewis, he says, why did you do that? Why do you run onto the field when you're not in the game and tackle some guy uh, from, uh, from scoring a touchdown? He says, well, and I quote, I was just so full of Alabama. <laughs> I was just so full of Alabama, and I couldn't stand to see him make another touchdown. I lost my composure, and I tackled him. I was just so full of Alabama, I just lost it. And I, I just didn't, I wasn't thinking about what was, what the rules were. All I was thinking about was that dude didn't get in the end zone again. I'm sick of watching them score. And he just kind of, you know, we look at him and we go, yeah, that's kind of crazy, right? Um, he sounds, you know, sounds kind of like, wow. Yeah, I mean, you really did lose your composure there. You're, uh, maybe you did have a little bit too much, uh, Alabama in you. And that is in Alabama football fandom. That has been a famous quote ever since. That's being consumed. Right? Uh, and we can be consumed by silly things. We see it in sports, right? We see it in a lot of things. We can be consumed by some things that really, in the grand scheme of things, are meaningless. And we can be consumed by a lot of things. Paul's saying, I'm consumed. I am carried away to the point of my entire life is just all about Jesus. It's all about, and it's all about the one thing that matters most. It's about Christ. He's saying, I'm consumed. I'm losing my composure. I am consumed with my relationship with Christ. That is life to me. To the point that if I was to die, it's gain. Well, why are you dying? It's gain. Because then I get to go be with Jesus. Right? He says, because to die is gain because he gets to go be with Christ. He says, so either way, I'm good. Because in life and death, I'm consumed by Jesus. If so, if you could have boiled Paul's life down, he would say, to live is Christ. Right? And for everybody, we've got something where that word Christ is for Paul. We could take, you know, if we had a big white uh, board up here, and we could write across it to live is, and we could have put a blank, and if we could all just be really honest for a moment and just say, okay, boil your life down to that one word. To live is what? Got to pick one. One thing, what is life to you? To live is what? And we all had to go and write something in the blank, right? Paul could go up and, without fudging it at all, could write in real big capital letters, C-H-R-I-S-T, right? It's Christ. But what would we write in that blank? What could we, in all honesty, write in that blank? For some people, it's to live as my kids. It's my spouse, my career, my personal happiness. For some, it's just two letters. It's me. Financial success, personal advancement. For some, it's, it's something that you don't have in life that you really want. And so it would be to live would be, would be romance. To live would be success. The essence of idolatry at its very core is for our hearts to say to live is and for anything other than Jesus to be in that blank. At the very core, that is what it means to be an idolater. That's why someone can, I believe it was Calvin or Augustine, one of those guys, I think it was Calvin that said, our hearts are idol factories. 
we produce idols. It's what we do apart from the grace of God. We just produce idols. We fill in the blank with something else. To live is. And for some of us, depending on our age and stage and phase of life, something new goes into the blank until Christ comes along and completely transforms us. For some people, they've so let their idols run their life that now it's to live is misery or guilt or fear or worry or shame or anger or bitterness unfulfillment loneliness hypocrisy covering up running hiding because their idol has so wrecked their life that now they are defined by the fruit of their idolatry because it always worship bears fruit it always does what you desire in your greatest passion life bears fruit only a life shaped by the gospel can have can produce the kind of joy in it that can withstand that can withstand what Paul was withstanding here. See, all these other things and money and success and pleasure and power and romance and all these other things, and some of them fine things, neutral things, or even good things, can give you joy. But it's temporary. That temporary joy may last your entire life, but it will not last for eternity. In the end, our idols will destroy us. The idols of the world will leave you beat up and alone in the end. And Paul says, he says, ultimately, whatever it is, if I live, I know it means fruitful labor for me. See, for the person for whom it is to live as Christ, life is filled with fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. For the person to live as something else, their life is filled with fruitless toil. <laughs> Look at verse 24, 25, and 26. Paul says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In everything, it's about the glory of Jesus for him. He loves these people. He wants, to start, he wants them to have cause to glory in Christ. See, Paul's desire to continue on is rooted not in his fear of death, but in his desire to impact the lives of these people for the glory of Jesus. He wants to come and see them. He longs for their progress and their joy in the faith. Paul wanted this church to live with the kind of purpose and the kind of sense of mission and the kind of desire in life that he did. Paul wanted them to glory in Christ Jesus, to boast in Christ Jesus. And he knew his coming would be a great encouragement to them when he showed up and got out of prison. And God would use his ministry to them to cause them to glory or boast in Christ Jesus more and more. And then in verses 27 through 30, he moves away from his personal situation. And in verse 27 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 18, you've kind of got a new section. Paul moves away from talking about his personal circumstances and begins to exhort the Philippians about their particular issues and the things that they need to be encouraged in. But verses 27 through 30 have a very close tie to what we were just talking about. There's a lot of, uh, a, a lot, you'll see a lot of the same words. Because the first exhortation, he is, he's kind of in a sense calling them to live like he lives in a way. He, his purpose in life is shaped by the gospel. So he has a mission shaped by the gospel. His desire in life and why he lives life is shaped by the gospel. And look at what he says to them starting in verse 27. This is Philippi's gospel-shaped responsibility. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightening anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them for their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Paul's whole life purpose had been shaped by the gospel of Christ. The good news about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he is God in the flesh, and that he has come to redeem people out of their sin and to save them from uh, sin, death, and hell, that he has died in the place of sinners on the cross, that he has taken the full brunt uh, and the blow of the wrath of God upon himself and and enduring the punishment we deserve, that he has been resurrected from the dead and that he's coming back again, that anybody that will trust in him and no longer in themselves will put all their faith and trust in him to save them will be saved. That good news, his whole life was shaped by that his whole life and he's saying your whole life needs to be shaped by that he says you need to live your life worthy of that the gospel you need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel what does that even mean i mean we read that and we kind of go i'm not worthy of the gospel right that's the one that's the first thing we learn right when you come to faith in christ is i'm not worthy that's like step one well what does paul mean here the phrase is in the greek actually is a reference to citizenship and in a little bit, he's going to tell them to live like a citizen of heaven. But in their language, they would have understand that he was basically, he was, he was calling them to live like good citizens of the gospel. In other words, good citizens of the kingdom of God, good citizens of heaven. To live a life manner worthy of the gospel was to, is to live like a good citizen and remember that your greatest citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven. See, Philippi was a Roman colony. And so they were Roman citizens. And that was a very big point of pride for a Roman colony. You weren't left to yourself. You were citizens of Rome. And citizens had privileges and they also had responsibilities. And they had ultimately a responsibility to obey the emperor. They wore even the Roman dress and they took Roman names. They spoke in Latin, the official language of Rome. In every way they were Rome. The Philippians were not in Rome. They were in Philippi, but they were of Rome. And Paul is reminding them that you are not in heaven but you are of heaven. You are of the gospel. And they need to be reminded that while they are not in heaven, they were of heaven. Paul was reminding them that their most citizen, important citizenship is not to Rome. That one of the keys for a Christian to be a good Roman citizen, so to speak, is the first and foremost to be a good citizen of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, the gospel always trumps Rome. Always trumps Rome. Always trumps Rome. We have our Rome. Right? And the gospel should always trump Rome. That means America. All right? That means the red, white, and blue. That means everything. That means our nation. I mean, the gospel trumps our allegiance to everything else. The gospel is greater than. The gospel is above that. That our greatest allegiance is to Jesus and his gospel, not to our city or to our state or to our nation. God calls us to be good citizens there, but the greatest responsibility we have is to the gospel. And living worthy of the gospel means we represent the gospel of Jesus well in all of our life. Just as they were to represent Rome well while they were in Philippi, we're to represent the gospel well while we're on earth. John Popper said, and I quote, We're called to live in a way that shows the worth and value of the gospel, that we prize the gospel more than anything in the world, that it's our greatest treasure. Paul wanted them to fulfill their responsibility of living lives in line with the gospel that they believed. 
And he wanted them to do it whether he was in town or not. He says, whether I'm absent or whether I'm there. In other words, you be consistent. There's no reprieve in the Christian life. You know, it's not just a on Sunday or hey, when the apostle comes to town, time to clean up around here, time to get things in line. Every day, all the time, living in light of the gospel. Then Paul lays out for them what it looks like corporately to live this way. You see it? He says, I want to hear that you're standing firm. In other words, I want you to be, you need to be a, a church that is shaped by the gospel. That's entire purpose for the church is shaped by the good news of Jesus. Should be a church that stands firm. Should, means we should be a solid church. Kenneth Wooth says the Greek word here means to hold one's ground. And the implication would have been that there's opposition coming against you and you must stand firm. He's saying you need to be solid, standing on the foundation of the gospel as you carry out the mission of sharing the gospel. Yeah, we, we move towards people and we love people and we serve people. We don't move away from the gospel. We stand firm in the gospel because we live in a constantly changing culture. Constantly changing. You say, I don't like the way culture is going. We'll wake up tomorrow to be a new direction, right? It's always changing, and it's never going the way that we want it to go because culture, generally speaking, is, is not mostly being shaped by the God of the Bible through the Word of God and people who love Jesus. It's mo- and many times, it's largely being shaped by people who don't love Jesus. And yeah, we want to try to shape culture and do all that, but we just need to understand that we can't get caught up in the cultural current, and we've got to stand firm. We've got to stand still. And that's part of what it means to be a church that's shaped by the gospel. We stand against Satan and his forces. We stand against the, 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 the passing tides of the world. And we stand for the things of God. And then he says you need to be unified. He says I want to hear that you're in one spirit with one mind. If we're going to stand, we've got to stand together. And the gospel is what unifies us. We have a common desire to make much of Jesus. A common desire to make disciples of Jesus. To advance his gospel. See, Jesus cares a lot about unity in the church. Before he went to the cross in John 17, he prayed. And he said, Father, I pray that you'll make them one. Pray that you'll make them one. And then God did that. You understand that? He answered that prayer. Jesus went to the cross. And through his death, we are one in him. Every Jew, every Gentile, anybody on the face of the planet that comes to saving knowledge of Jesus is one in him. We are one body. It's one thing, though, to be that positionally. It's another thing to live that way practically. And so positionally, we're one in Christ. If you're a follower of Christ today. But practically, we don't always live that way. Just like positionally, you're in Christ. You're righteous. You're holy. You're hidden in Christ. But practically, do you always live that way? And so just like a Christian that goes out and commits heinous sin, a Christian that goes out and lives in rebellion against God is having an identity crisis and not living the way Christ has called them to live. A church that doesn't walk in unity and oneness and harmony is having an identity crisis. It may do a lot of good things, but they grieve the heart of God. He calls us to unity. Because we're a community of faith. And what's the root word of that? Unity. Right? You can't spell it without it. We, we are to live as a community. To be a community, God wants us to, to come together as one, and He wants us to pull in the same direction, unified, together. You know, if we had a big, massive boulder 
fall out of the sky. Just to paint a scary picture for you this morning in case you were asleep. A huge massive boulder falls out in our big plot of grass out here where we hope to build a worship center one day, right? And it's laying out there, this huge massive boulder. We decide we want to move it. And now, would you rather go round up a hundred people who are super strong, I mean, all-star kind of people, right, weight room warriors, and have them all get a hold of this boulder and try to move it in a hundred different directions, or just give me 50 nerds, man, and give me 50 weak people, 50 skinny as a rail, couldn't normally do anything, and get them pushed in the same direction, and you'll get a lot more done. And I'm telling you, unity is greater than talent. And unity is greater than influence. And unity is greater than money. And unity is greater than power. Because unity is a gospel quality. It is a supernatural thing wrought by the Holy Spirit. The one of the things that should separate the local church from every other body and organization on the planet is its uncharacteristic supernatural unity. Because it's supernatural. It's done by God through the gospel. We should be the most diverse and most unified people on the entire planet as the church. And not only that, not just be unified, he says, be striving. Striving side by side, working. I mean, it literally, it's an athletic term. It's where we get our word athlete, the, the Greek word for striving here. It's an athletic term. It's the idea of fighting together, wrestling together, struggling together. In other words, he's saying there's going to be resistance. There's going to be opposition. It's not always going to be easy to advance the gospel. He says, I want you striving for the faith of the gospel together. Not striving against one another. Not fighting against one another. Fighting together to advance the gospel. And then he says, I want you to be fearless. He says, and not frightened anything by your opponents. You know, if the gospel's true, what do we have to fear? We should be the most uncannily, just fearless people in the world, if the gospel be true. Only people that have been delivered from the fear of death by the power of the gospel can fearlessly look into the eyes of their persecutors. Many times, the lack of persecution in our lives is a startling reprimand to the apathetic and complacent approach we take sometimes to the Christian life. Can you imagine what our world would look like if we were fearless in advancing the gospel? In the face of all opposition, if we were just fearless, right? We're, we're, we're afraid of people, much less the people that persecute us. We, 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 we tend to be kind of fearful with the gospel. And Paul's calling us to be fearless with the gospel. And that's only possible through the power of God's Spirit. When your life has been shaped by the gospel. Paul says our fearless advancement of the gospel amidst persecution is a sign to those that persecute the church of their destruction. It's a, it's a red light to them to say, hey, you're going the wrong way. See how fearless they are? And he says it's a sign of your own salvation. It, it's, it's proof, he's saying. And he says, how we suffer when persecuted is a testimony. He says your persecution has been granted to you. Just like your faith in Christ has been granted to you. In other words, it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. God's not surprised when we suffer. God can and does use our suffering. And then Paul paints a picture here. See, he's painting a picture of what it looks like to walk in strength and unity, striving together fearlessly to advance the gospel for a church as a community, not just as individuals. When, when, when people who have their desire to glorify Jesus, who live on mission to advance the gospel, come together as a community, this is what it looks like. They come together in unity and they strive together fearlessly to advance the gospel because that's the purpose of the church, to glorify God. By advancing the gospel, by making disciples. And only a people with hearts and lives shaped by the gospel, whose purpose in life has been defined not by themselves or not by this world, but by the gospel, 
can strive towards that kind of God-glorifying goal. North Park, as a church, exists to glorify God by helping people trust and follow Jesus. To help me make disciples. That's why we're here. And if we want to fulfill that, and well, we won't fulfill that, unless our greatest desire is for Jesus and His glory. We need to understand that we have a responsibility to let our lives as individuals show the worth and value of the good news of Jesus. And also as a community for it to show that. God's plans for North Park are bigger than me and they're bigger than you and they're bigger than North Park. His plans for every local church are bigger than that. They're about His kingdom. They're about people and where they spend eternity. They're about, it's about the glory of Jesus. And so we need to be standing together, striving together to advance the gospel. Not our agendas. It's not what it's about. It's about what's going to advance the gospel. But that only happens if we do it individually. Nobody lives their life for themselves all week and then comes together in community and lives for Jesus and other people. Selfish churches, me-centered churches, are made up of selfish people. That's the harsh truth. Let me ask you this morning, what is your desire this morning? You say, well, North Park's not a selfish church. No, I don't believe we're a selfish church. I believe we can be one. I believe, I don't believe we've arrived. <laughs> I believe I can be a selfish pastor. I believe you can be a selfish Christian. I believe we all have the capability of going that direction. That's why it's not enough that we just come to faith in Jesus when we're 5 years old, 15 years old, 30 years old. We have to continually be shaped by the good news. Continually be looking to Jesus and allowing Him to shape the purpose and goals of our life. What's your desire this morning? What is life for you? What goes in that blank? To live is blank. Is it Jesus? Is it something else? What's the dominant theme of your life? The dominant goal? What's the mission of your life? See, some of you are living your life apart from the purpose God made for you. And the only way to get in sync with God is to come to faith in Jesus Christ. To recognize that you're a sinner, to repent of your sin, and to embrace Jesus and what He did for you on the cross and His resurrection to save you. And I would encourage you this morning, if you've never turned from your sin and you've never embraced the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you and rose again, if you've never put all your chips in with Jesus and surrendered your life to Him, then I would encourage you to do that today and to begin to live a life with a new purpose. If you're a believer this morning, as many of us, not most of us are this morning, there's joy unending found in letting Jesus and His glory and His missions be the anthem and the theme and the purpose of your life. And there's nothing more miserable for a Christian than when your purpose in life begins to be something else other than Jesus and making much of Him. When, because God has changed your heart. And now, nothing else really fits. And so you'll be miserable when you try to make the theme of your life something other than Jesus. It's round square peg and a round hole. It don't work. And so maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you don't have joy. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe your circumstances have gotten the best of you. And maybe, maybe you're just going through a rough patch. But maybe this morning, maybe you begin to live for something other than Jesus. 